Well, hello, everyone. So good to be with you. My name is Abby Odio, and I am a pastor here at Bethany Green Lake. Uh, welcome to all of you, wherever you are joining us from, uh, your various locations throughout the city and the world. It is a joy to be with you this morning as we look at God's word together. We continue this week in a series that we're calling Displaced, uh, looking at the book of James written to a people who were indeed displaced from their homes in Jerusalem. Life for this group of people is not what they had necessarily hoped or expected. And James speaks into this context really practical words of wisdom and encouragement, many of which um, kind of reframe or echo Jesus's teaching Uh, the Sermon on the Mound, about how it is they are to live. Our text for today focuses specifically on the power, the impact, and the importance of the words that we speak and how they shape the reality around us. So let's pray together this morning as we prepare to indeed be formed by God's word. Loving Father, we uh, come together as your church this morning not in a physical space together, but indeed as one body. God, we are still here. We are uh, still longing, still believing that indeed you hold the words to life, that the story is still being written, that the good news is indeed good news, that your kingdom does indeed reign. God, our longing, our calling, we know is to be members of that body, to be a lived expression of that good news, even as we feel displaced. Given that truth, God, this morning, we ask that you would indeed meet us here by your Holy Spirit, that these words would not just be words, they would be powerful words that change and form us to be people who bear your image. God, we sit in your love this morning and claim that that is our hope, our desire. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So in the year 1984, uh, a writer and Scrabble fanatic uh, by the name of Giles Brandreth predicted that in the average lifetime, a person would speak some uh, 860,341,500 words. Now, just for a point of reference, that's roughly equivalent to the number of words you would speak if you were to read the Bible aloud some 1,200 times. Now, I name that because in our text from today, James grounds his teaching in a pretty sort of simple but important reality. He says, these 860 million plus words, they matter. Like taken together, they will determine the trajectory of your story. At the onset of the text, he offers two metaphors, one about a horse and one about a ship. And he says, both the destiny of the horse and the destiny of the ship are determined by these small but hugely significant pieces of equipment. The bridle steers the horse, the rudder steers the ship. And in a like manner, James says, words steer your life. Words create worlds. With your words, you land a job. With your words, you build intimacy, friendship. With your words, you give shape to the culture of your family every day. With your words, you demand justice and challenge the status quo in the name of Christ. With your words, you may have gotten in trouble. Maybe you got a date. Maybe some of you lost a date. And not only do words shape our external reality, but words help us understand ourselves. 
Centuries before modern psychology was even a thing, scripture indicates that you get people talking about their life and their story, and they'll begin to understand themselves. It'll actually move them towards wholeness. Jesus listened to the whole story of the woman who is bleeding in Luke chapter eight. Putting words to our experience with the right audience can actually heal. Some of you are verbal processors and you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are married to verbal processors and you really know what I'm talking about. And so this teaching, it brings uh, um, us to this sort of important check-in, which is to ask the question, what sort of reality are we creating with our words as individuals, as a family, as a church, as a body? And as we do that, the text offers us three important points of wisdom around our words, which are this, words create sparks, Words bless or curse, and words are a window. We're going to look at each of those points of wisdom today. So first we begin with this truth that James speaks to, words create sparks. This is pretty straightforward. Beginning in verse 5 of the text, James introduces this metaphor of fire. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. Now this metaphor is one we are all too familiar with here on the West Coast. We know that at certain times of year, you don't go camping or backpacking and make a campfire because the small spark, it has huge potential to destroy thousands of acres. That combination of heat and oxygen and fuel, it's known as the fire triangle. And when those elements come together, they set in motion this chain reaction that's erratic, it's hard to predict, it's difficult to stop. And in the same way, James is saying, understand this, your words are a spark. They are loaded with potential to set in motion a series of events for better or worse. And not just for you, but for those around you as well. Your words matter. Many of you listening to this message will know of this reality all too well. You'll know the effects of this chain reaction. You spent time in a destructive relationship where instead of truth and affirmation spoken in love, you were always made to feel inadequate like you were just missing the mark. You grew up in a home where your parents often used words like disappointed. You were part of a church where strict words of legalism grew within you a sense of sort of internalized shame. There's a member of my own family who had a real difficult time learning to read when she was young. She remembers distinctly this day she was called stupid by a classmate. Fast forward now several years and she becomes a first grade teacher, a phenomenal first grade teacher. She teaches hundreds of kids to read and recently she just retired after 38 years and we kind of gathered to celebrate that. And as we were, were doing that, someone asked her, you know, did you ever think of teaching any other grade but first grade? And she said, well, sometimes I entertained, you know, the notion of, of, teaching older kids, but I would come back to this day when this, you know, peer of mine called me stupid. And I never pursued it because I just never thought I had it in me. I never thought I was smart enough. A chain reaction, a word, a spark that changed her reality. Many of you know, uh, just as Nathan spoke of this morning, in parallel with this series, we're inviting our community to be part of a common compassion this initiative to support the unhoused in our city. I was helping with the preparations for this initiative and I came across a story of someone experiencing homeless right here in our neighborhood. And one day this woman said she was sitting down by Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle and 
Uh, she overheard a father tell their child not to look at her, not to stare because it was rude. And then that father, as he was saying this, he guided the child to the other side of the street to avoid passing her in sort of close proximity. And she recalled how these words, well, perhaps they were well-intended, they stayed with her. They deepened her sense of shame, deepened this fear that her life had so devolved in the wrong direction that she wasn't worthy of someone's attention, of literally being seen by them. And these, these sparks, they happen all the time, all around us. They're not always necessarily negative. This week, the world watched as that guilty verdict was read in the murder of George Floyd. I was thinking about words and, and their power this week and how at the very end of his life, George Floyd made that tragic statement, I can't breathe. It was, it was a literal plea of a man who could not take his next breath. But as we know, those words were a spark. They were loaded with history and meaning and context. They were a plea, but they've also become a story. They've also become a demand for a more just kingdom-like world. God's kingdom. And so James begins by situating us, the reader, in this truth that the words we speak are loaded with potential. They're not neutral. And we, we have to own that. We have to know that. They set in motion realities. Be mindful of the power you hold, James says. Hold it with care and intentionality. And so we ask the question, what sort of chain reactions are we setting in motion with the words that we say? That brings us to this closely related second bit of wisdom, which is this, words either bless or they curse. Words have the potential in them to bless or to curse. In James 3, 9, the author is speaking about the tongue and he writes this, with it, we bless the Lord and Father and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. So as we consider this question, what chain reactions are we setting in motion with our words? The author invites us to two options, two possibilities. With our words, we either bless or we curse. Now, this is important because these ideas of blessing and curse, they are not standalone concepts. By that, I mean they are a part of a much larger, bigger narrative that has been unfolding since the beginning of time. And as James speaks to his uh, largely Jewish audience, he is locating his listeners. He is reminding them of these stories. The story of the power of words actually begins in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1. It's here we see the tremendous power that words have. When God speaks, he is not just uh, conveying information, but rather things happen. Lasting realities come into existence. His word is a flame. It has impact. For example, Genesis 1 is this poem recalling the seven days of creation, and each day begins with the phrase, and God said. On day one, God speaks, and with words, he creates the day and night. On the second day, he speaks, and again, brings into being a dome called the sky. On day three, with his words, he creates the land and the sea. Now stick with me. This is really important. Notice what happens when God speaks on days four through six. With each corresponding um, with each corresponding day, God fills the voids he spoke into existence during the first three days. By that, I mean the day and night he fills with the sun and moon. That's day four. The dome of the sky he fills with birds. That's day five. The land he fills with creatures to walk upon it. That's day six. Now, remember, these words were not written as a sort of scientific 
textbook meant to convey on sort of an atomic level how creation happened. And that's okay. Just because these words are not scientific truth doesn't make them any less true. That's so important. They are true indeed because they tell us something absolutely essential about the character and the nature of God. And what we see when we apply that lens is that God is one who with his words fills empty voids. He brings life. He is the kind of God who speaks and sets into motion an ecosystem whereby no creature is forgotten. That's God. I love how the late pastor A.W. Tozer sums this part of God's character. He says, the word of God, the word of God is the breath of God filling the world with living potentiality. Simply put, God uses his words from the very beginning to bless, to fill, to promote life and breath. But you'll notice at the beginning of scripture, there is another story we see unfold, which also has to do with words. In Genesis 3, it's using words that the serpent is deceptive. With his words, the serpent convinces the woman to eat uh, from the tree, which God commanded them, do not eat from it, claiming it will be the best way for her when really it will lead to death. And talk about a chain reaction from there. The woman convinces the man to eat as well. And then the man blames the woman and it just keeps going on. Both of these stories, the story of blessing and the story of curse, they continue to this day. They take deep root in our humanity. And essentially in James chapter three, the author is asking readers, which chain reaction will you move forward with the words you speak? Words that bless, words that move into empty spaces and bring life, justice, flourishing. Words that acknowledge and affirm the image of God in every person. Or will you speak words that perpetuate a different story? Words that instead of being motivated by God's good and perfect kingdom are motivated by your own little kingdom. Words that momentarily build up your ego at the expense of another. Words of deception instead of truth. It's interesting, without mixing words, James makes it clear that choosing words that curse will ultimately lead to our own demise. In this statement that's pretty difficult to swallow, he says, the tongue sets on fire the cycle of nature and is itself set on fire by hell. The word used for hell in uh, verse six is that Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was actually a valley just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. James is presumably writing this book uh, from Jerusalem. He's very aware of this valley, familiar with it. Tradition held that certain bad kings of Judah would uh, offer child sacrifices in Gehenna. And so it was thought to be this place of sort of tragedy and death. Eventually it became the city dump where garbage was thrown and burned. It was not a friendly place. It was not a place anyone would want to be. And James issues this strong warning. Your words can land you here if you're not careful. Some of you have said things you wish you could take back. Others may have had an opportunity to speak up, to speak words of blessing, and we let that chance go by. I know I've been there. Remain silent. 
Some of you may have patterns of speech or blame that have landed you in isolation, severed relationship. This can feel like Gehenna. I'll never forget a few years ago, I had the, the privilege of speaking with Don Newcomb, who is, uh, as many of you probably know, he uh, was a pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1940s. He's remembered as one of the greatest pitchers that ever played the game. Don was also one of the first black men to enter the major leagues following Jackie Robinson in 1947. I think we have a photo that's Jackie on the right and Don on the left. They were teammates. They were good friends. And um, I had the chance to talk with Don real late in his life, just about a year before he passed away. And in listening to Don's story, I learned that he and Jackie and others were coached on how to maintain self-control, like how to stay silent when Uh, racist words and insults uh, and threats were just being spewed at them all the time. And Don recalled for me by name with sort of this smile on his face, certain teammates that he had, uh, white teammates who would speak up on his behalf when, when this was happening. And then his tone sort of changed and he said, and there were plenty of guys on the team who just sort of stayed silent when, when this would happen. And um, that people would come at you pretty hard and it would hurt. And I, I didn't know how to respond, so I said something to the effect of, you know, I can't imagine that. That must have been so difficult for you. And I'll never forget his response because it surprised me a little bit. He said it was, but I mostly just felt very sad for them. See, when I read these words from James, I think of Don's words in that moment. James says, we don't honor the image of God and others when we neglect to speak blessing to them. That's true. But it's also true that we do not honor or live out the image of God in ourselves, the person we were created to be, when we choose to speak curse over blessing. We become less of who we were created to be too, and eventually we find ourselves in this lonely Gehenna. And so that brings us to consider the important question, which story, which narrative are your words contributing to, continuing on? Which reality are you bringing into being? Which kingdom? I want to be clear, this this idea of speaking blessing over curse, it isn't isn't always clear cut. It's not always simple. It often takes thoughtful discernment. Sometimes we become so familiar with speaking with sarcasm or cynicism or judgment or patterns of gossip become so a part of certain relationships that we don't consider it harmful, though we know there is a slow erosion happening. And sometimes blessing can look different than we think it might look. It often comes in the form of speaking words of kindness, affirmation, and gratitude. But it can also come in the form of silence, of listening instead of speaking. That can be a blessing. Other times it comes in the form of speaking hard truths, doing it with gentleness and respect and civility, but saying it. And so the challenge in this area of discipleship becomes, how do we know what to do and when to do it? How do we understand what is blessing and what is curse when it isn't so obvious? Well, that brings us to the third and final bit of wisdom James offers, which is this. He says, words are a window. Words are a window. In the last few verses of today's text, James asks two real interesting rhetorical sort of questions. In verse 11, he says, can a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? And then in verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? 
Now, why does James offer these questions? It would seem he's trying to emphasize the reality that the words we speak are actually a window into our soul, a window into who we are. And we can only speak words from kind of the core of ourselves, from the heart. Fig trees don't yield olives. And because we live in a broken world, we have to acknowledge that we have all been caught up in chain reactions of some kind or another that have not served to bless us. That's a part of every story of every person listening right now. We have been hurt by words. And so in order to be a person who speaks words of blessing, we must locate ourselves, locate our souls, the very core of who we are in the story of God's blessing once again. In Psalm chapter 19, there is a prayer that speaks to this notion so well. The author says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now notice here the connection between the psalmist's ability to speak words acceptable to God in line with God's story and his uh, relationship to that God. It is precisely because the author knows God as rock and redeemer that he is able to speak words that are pleasing to God, that build God's kingdom. If any of you um, have toddlers at home or, or no small kids, uh, you probably understand this dynamic. Just a couple weeks back, my uh, three-year-old son was kind of having a hard day. I was having a hard day. Uh, and in this moment of sort of utter frustration, he looks at me and he says, Mom, you are. And I could tell he was going to call me a name, which isn't something that's happened before in our relationship. But I was sort of waiting, like, what is he going to say? He said, Mom, you are, you are a great, big, mean dinosaur. I shook it off, believe it or not, I have been called worse things. But as a parent in this moment, I've learned it's my job to not take his words personally. It's my job to sort of step back and examine the context, right? He's tired, he's hungry, he's feeling a bit out of sorts for some reason or another. And at this, ba at this age, we know bad behavior is um, most often sort of a plea for help in some way. Now, that doesn't mean I don't address the behavior. I say to him, you know, Mark, in, in this family, we love each other and we, we don't call each other uh, big, mean dinosaurs. It's just not something we do. But the most important help and helpful thing I can do for him is not speak to him, but after addressing the behavior is actually to meet him on the level of his soul, to get down on his level, to hold him for a few minutes. To, to be with him, to offer some reassurance. I know that the words he speaks are a window to what is happening in his little life, in his little soul. See, similarly, our, our words are a window to our soul. And it, until I allow the truth of Jesus's love and redemption to take root in the core of my being, until I can say, God, you are my rock and there is no other rock, I cannot tame the tongue. Won't happen because it's from the place of naming Jesus as rock and redeemer that we find identity, security. Without it, we become reactive or defensive. We will tear others down. We will not have space for their story. We will not be able to bear witness to it. We'll gossip. We'll recede to places of safety in a moment when we're called to speak up in love. That proclamation 
the Lord is my rock and my redeemer is the author's way of saying, I'm okay. I know where I stand. I stand in God's blessing. And therefore, therefore, I am free to bless. I'm free to check my ego and instead offer a word with courageous humility. Because these words, these words are not mine, but they're grounded in this other source. And friends, let's just say it, that takes effort. It takes a growing self-awareness. It takes locating ourselves close to God over and over and over again. It takes shedding self-interest and entitlement. If you know in this moment that your words have not been an expression of blessing, you might start by looking internally. How is your soul? You might make a practice this week of simply reminding yourself before you speak, the Lord is my rock and redeemer. See how that changes what it is that you communicate, what it is that you offer to the world, which narrative it is that you further with what you say. So as our band comes back up to lead us in reflection, and as we close today, I just, I want to make this real practical for us. I I did a bit of math and it would seem that most of us, this is pastor math to be sure, so kind of take it with a grain of salt, but most of us will speak at least 49,000 words in the coming week. And so as you go about this, ask yourself, will these words encourage? Will they build up? Are they honest? Will they fill a void of emptiness this person might be living with? Do they align with God's ultimate command to love and especially to love the most vulnerable in our community? Do they affirm the humanity in the other? Consider that before you speak to your coworker in a meeting, before uh, you you address your spouse or your kids. Please consider that before you post on social media, before you look away instead of engaging with your unhoused neighbor or before uh, you you know, enter into a hard but necessary conversation. Ask yourself those questions. Live with those questions this week. Make it a goal that every person you interact with will be better, will come, will come away blessed in the truest sense of that word because you have spoken to them, because you've offered these words. As I send us with that charge, I'm, I'm mindful of Jesus. I'm mindful of how his life embodied this completely, entirely, perfectly. If you have space this week, read one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and take note of the times Jesus speaks. Friends, Jesus lived in such close proximity to God that the words he spoke were always blessing. Not always easy, especially those who were in positions of power and influence and privilege, but always, always blessing. And this is true right up to the very end. We read in those kind of final painful moments on the cross, Jesus turns to the crook next to him and he grants him the assurance of life. Think about that. Right up to the end, he fills this void. And then again, he speaks and he extends forgiveness to the very people who are the source of his pain, the very people who put him on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. God speaks in the beginning and fills the world with living potentiality. And Jesus uses his words to contribute that, uh, continue that work right up to the very end. Friends, by the Holy Spirit, may we do the same with our words. Let's pray together.
Loving Father, we thank you that in this moment we stand in your blessing. That you look at us as your children and you speak words of love and affirmation and goodness. God, even in our imperfection, even in our sin, you see us fully, you love us completely. Your love is undiscerning. God, we thank you for that. We stand in that for a moment. God, help us to be the very same people to mirror that very same gift that you have given to us. May we especially do that with the words we speak. May they be full of life. May they be full of healing. May they fill empty places in the soul of another. May they communicate the awesome and wonderful justice and power and love and grace of Jesus Christ. May we truly be your voice in this world that so needs your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.